This is Raleigh Keenan, co-author of CMO to CRO, The Revenue Takeover by the Next Generation Executive, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, and thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. I do this podcast to help me and my listeners keep up with the latest ideas that matter most in the quickly changing and somewhat overwhelming world of modern marketing and sales. My day job is running a marketing agency that helps manufacturers and industrial companies grow their revenue. To learn more about the problems we solve and how we do it, visit salesartillery.com. All right, enough yakking. Let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Raleigh Keenan to talk about the book he has co-authored with Mike Geller and Brandy Starr, CMO to CRO, The Revenue Takeover by the Next Generation Executive, published by Lioncrest. Raleigh Keenan has more than 20 years of experience in enterprise software consulting and marketing strategy and is the Chief Revenue Officer of Tegrita, a full-service marketing technology consulting firm. He is a graduate of Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management and Interesting facts. Raleigh is a trained hostage negotiator, and before getting into the business of marketing, technology, and revenue, Raleigh was on staff at USA Volleyball in Colorado Springs, working with the best volleyball teams in the country. Raleigh, congratulations on CMO to CRO, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you for having me. So, Raleigh Keenan, this is the part of the podcast I don't normally do, but this is the trivia section of the Marketing Book Podcast. You are the second author on the Marketing Book Podcast who is originally from Texas, played volleyball in college, got a master's degree, now lives in Colorado, and has written a marketing book. Did you even imagine there'd be another author like that? No, I did not. It's Andrea Freire. Okay. She is the author of Mastering Marketing Agility, Transform Your Marketing Teams, and Evolve Your Organization, and she lives, I don't know, an hour or two north of you, and again, all those things are true, and even when she went out to Oxford in England, uh, she played volleyball there, you know, trying to teach those folks a a thing or two about Texas volleyball, so you all have a lot in common, and if you haven't met, I'm going to have to arrange that. For sure, Uh, yeah. So... Did you become a hostage negotiator because you have six children? <laughs> um, well, to be clear, um, that that sort of uh, piece of my history gets used a lot because it's an interesting thing. It also gets accidentally turned or curved into a slight misconception. Uh-huh. So uh, I was trained. You do have a lot of kids at the house, so <laughs> that part's a fact. Yeah. Um, I was trained by a hostage negotiator and the principles used to basically have that, you know, dialogue with someone holding 
people hostage is actually uh, very useful principles in uh, ha- having conversations with you know about you know million dollar contracts and um, really discussing partnerships you know anything that we do as marketing sale revenue executives uh, those principles are very much the same uh, lower stakes uh-huh. which you know may may be the case of how I always say I, I'm not nervous know better how big the uh, stakes are in business because they're never as big as a hostage negotiation so I you know I tend to be fairly uh, relaxed when everyone else is worried when we're talking about you know giant you know seven eight nine figure contracts wow so but just to be clear when you are negotiating large contracts your prospective customer is armed and dangerous (laughs) right (laughs) well i guess you could assume that so now for those playing the home game raleigh is the third northwestern mba i've interviewed that i that i can recall uh the others are dave munn and dan gingas i've interviewed dan twice about uh, his excellent books And I've also interviewed a professor from there, Dr. Philip Kotler, the father of modern marketing. I've interviewed him three times. I think I can just stop this podcast now that I've been able to (laughs) interview him. (laughs) But what's interesting is none of you were in his class, Dave, Dan, and you. So yeah, uh, that's uh, interesting. I'm starting to think maybe people were avoiding him, but that's not true. I have a buddy I worked (laughs) with in New York years ago who went off to Northwestern, and he was in his class, and... He used to message me while he was uh, in the in the class, and it was very uh, exciting. He also is a uh, book nerd like me. So this book, CMO to CRO, was uh, also recommended by a previous guest on the show, Christina Del Viar. Uh, okay. I interviewed her about her uh, book, uh, Sway, Implement the Grit Marketing Method to Gain Influence and Drive Corporate Strategy. And I believe she said that you all had sent her a copy of the book. She read it and really liked it. So... Listeners who are paying very close attention will have already heard about this book, and the book is uh, very well written. Uh, and I say that uh, thanks. Sometimes I'm wary of books that have three authors because uh, <laughs> there's been one or two mm-hmm. in the past where they weren't. I mean, you could really tell it was written by three different people who perhaps had never met. <laughs> but this was right. uh, beautifully written, edited in one voice, and it had a really good sense of of humor. And parts of it I thought were quite funny. And Raleigh Keenan, I know funny. I'm a clownfish. <laughs> oh man, after all my kids, I know exactly the line and where that is in the movie. So. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure that's not the last time you're going to hear it because they're going to say, hey dad, let's watch uh, Finding Nemo one more time. I want to read from uh, two sections at the beginning of the book and then we can dive in. Does that sound good? Okay. Sounds good. So from page 12, I want to quote, Customer experience is a key lever to revenue growth. Companies need revenue to pay salaries, fund projects, and invest in infrastructure and research and development. Companies want to turn a profit for their shareholders, too. Without revenue, none of this happens. Ultimately, the CEO is responsible for revenue. But unless you're a startup, that's not who's out there closing deals. CEOs look to sales for revenue, and more recently to digital technologies and the teams that own them. But still, sales is number one in the CEO's Big book of revenue. For decades, generations, sales has sat proudly on the revenue throne. Businesses have depended on salespeople to bring in the cash. They also blame sales when revenue goals are missed. We want to let you in on a secret. Sales no longer sits on that throne. They abdicated the revenue throne a long time ago. 
Salespeople are only one piece of the revenue puzzle. They know it. Marketing knows it. Somebody needs to say it out loud and do something about those missed revenue goals. In this book, we'll show you what you can do. It's not fair to the CEO to keep missing revenue goals. It's not fair to sales to take the blame. And it's not fair to marketing to have to stand aside because marketing leaders are the solution to the customer experience and therefore the revenue problem. And then I want to jump over to one quick bit on page... 31. You're not crazy. You got stuck in an insane business model that hasn't caught on to the fact that the 20th century ended decades ago. It's time to move on. It's time to say enough is enough. It's time to take charge and make the big changes that bring CX and revenue growth in the 21st century. Marketing leaders are uniquely positioned to make the first move. And with this book, you have the guidance. Now, Raleigh, in the beginning of the book, you all are really clear, like a two-by-four between the eyes, that this is not another magic pill. And I think a lot of folks who are reading these books uh, may be thinking, okay, here it comes. Please explain that this is not another magic pill and why you say that so early in the book. Well, I think it's, you know, you're alluding to it a little bit, which is we all know that that's not true about anything, we're skeptical um, of that, yeah. Yeah, as complex as business is um, for most uh, most of us, um, I suppose there may be some super simplistic business models where maybe there is a you know just a silver bullet for this kind of thing. But the point is that you know, as consultants, you know, uh, at Tegrita, and then you look at the three of us that are authors here, all of us have spent a lot of our life consulting for businesses. And we know that when you're trying to make a change and you're trying to make an improvement, and in this case, we're talking about the whole revenue machine, everyone's in a different place. So the way we lay this book out is to say, let's make sure that that's the big consideration here. Where are you? And that's how you start. And there's guides and fences to stay within to get to move things forward, but it is uh, it would be uh, malpractice on our part as consultants to say, "Look, this is exactly what you need to do in this exact way, and you're going to get, you're going to win." Um, it's harder than that. Uh, it takes. It's not fast. It takes time. It takes you know multiple business cycles, which we talk about in the steps and how to kind of gauge where you are um, to go to the next stage. Um, but that's, we would just want it to work. And that's why we wrote the book in the first place. Right. And it could have been a very complicated book, but you, what's interesting is you all were able to peel back to those absolutely required elements, uh, that you've seen successful companies, uh, have who have uh, implemented this, this transformation, or as this, as you call it, the, the revenue takeover. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to ask another question, which is from page 15. Talk about this. You say that this CRO isn't the chief revenue officer in the traditional sense. So mm-hmm. again, mm-hmm. you wrote that like there may be some confusion out there. Yeah. In fact, um, <laughs> see, how, how could I lay this out in the right way? That's so true that even after I say it, 
and talk about it. I'll have, I've been in, in podcasts and just discussions. I've been in panel discussions and where I'm laying that out, which I'll do in a second. And then even when I'm done, they'll try to repeat it back to me, still stating, trying to fit it into the current sort of CRO model. Okay. So maybe and we sort of like step back and explain what that means to them. Yeah, and sort and sort of like, oh, so you're saying this and this, and and it's kind of kind of like what I'm doing, like, and I'm like, no, it's not. But okay, I, <laughs> oh, because they I might just, be a chief revenue officer. Yeah, I yeah. see. Okay. Or, or they think they are. Uh-huh. They, I just have a different title, you know, that kind of thing. But <clears throat> what what's happened? I'll give you an example. A uh, hundred and fifty million dollar company. I was talking to the CEO. He has a CRO and a CCO. CCO is a chief commercial officer. You know, becoming more and more popular in in kind of the B2B world, particularly in kind of big ticket consulting uh, kind of stuff. And CCO is like head of sales. And there's almost really, there's a head of marketing, but they don't sit at the table with the C-level folks. Mm -hmm. But there's a CRO. And then there's a head of marketing under that person. And the CRO is almost the numbers guy for private equity, who in many cases, and in this case, uh, own either a lot or a majority of the business. And the CRO is almost a mathematician in where's the money coming from? Why is this happening? Uh, how do we how do we turn the knobs on these particular um, are these dials on this on these particular metrics so that it'll turn revenue up? And uh, oh, and by the way, I got to go talk to the marketing person because they work for me. That's not what I'm talking about. What we're talking about in the book, we're talking about a very fundamental shift, which is why we kind of lay it out in stages because it's hard to shift. But just this understanding that things have really changed and the experience prospects and future, you know, future clients, whatever you want to call them, and current clients, the way they experience your brand is is a majority digital and not with the sales team and that interaction. It's important part of it, but it has really shifted over the past 20 years mm-hmm. and we are still trying to operate with, you know, all the private equity guys, buddies who are, you know, well, that guy uh, has been doing head of sales stuff for my portfolio companies forever. So put him in charge. Uh, you know, don't change the structure. Just put a head of sales right. and, and head of marketing in. And so we're saying, no, you got to truly ditch that paradigm um, right. and say there's a revenue engine and sales is part of it, not different. Right. Just to add to, uh, to, to to conclude this section, so you're right. The CRO isn't the chief revenue officer in the traditional sense. They don't track revenue. They provide leadership to drive it. Yeah, <laughs> That's right. almost like the whole book right there. And right. it explains why, and I had not read about this before. So it was very interesting. Um, but let's, you know, as they say, there's the rub, okay? The person that thinks that uh, they are the CRO, as you all describe in the book, uh, you know, there's a problem. There's a lot of misalignment. There's misunderstanding. There's conflict. 
There's all kinds of existential mm-hmm. problems. So let's set the stage with all this drama and, and some of these things, just like you all do uh, in the book. And mm-hmm. you started to touch on it just a minute there. I want you to talk a little bit more about this. You, you write, business is digitized, but the business is analog. Explain what you mean there, because I think that's uh, going to stick with a lot of people. Business is digitized, but the business is analog. Yeah, so it's it's the allude to my line of it's been a couple of decades and yet we're still operating as if look, the sales team is the one that handles the deals, right? And mm-hmm. so that's a very person-to-person hand-to-hand combat situation. I've got to call this prospect. I'm going to follow up with this guy. I you know, and we treat that as like, yeah, that's how we get deals closed. And let me be clear, sales is super important and they're not being pushed aside here. It's just things have changed a lot and someone may, there's plenty of research, some of which is self-serving and not, not completely accurate, but, but, but there's truth in some of this research of, you know, how many touches someone has with your brand before they even call you mm-hmm. or, or, or how far along they are in deciding, you know, in their buyer's journey, that's been all digital before they even have a human interaction. Mm-hmm. So we kind of all know this. And then of course we have our own personal experience of, yeah, I mean, I finally did talk to somebody, but I was way down the road and it's digital. It's, you know, at the beginning 20 years ago, it was like, I just read their website. I could have, I didn't really do that, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's even more interactive than that now where, you know, because I was wondering about, uh, you know, some new ERP system that now I get ERP ads when I'm just on YouTube, you know, watching highlights from Devin Hester returning kickoffs, you know, like, oh, you're getting all this interaction, with that it's very digital but you know i'll pick i'll keep picking on private equity my favorite thing to do um you know but still the private equity guys are like great got this company let's get ahead of sales and ahead of marketing and they're just running it like it's not connected right right. um and so that's what i mean by analog uh as the business is analog versus you know that's not how it really is happening Right, and we'll come back to that in a minute uh, when we talk about the the modern front office. I want to read this one story, which kind of frightened me, but also I feel like I've seen this movie before, <laughs> and I want mm-hmm. you to comment on it. This is in the section on um, one of the other problems, which you, the title of which is What Gets Measured Gets Done. And the title of this little section is FOMO Gone Wild, Fear of Missing Out Gone Wild. The head of marketing at a sports organization that Raleigh worked with attended a league conference. During a meeting, another team's head of marketing was going on and on about his department's amazing MarTech stack. That's marketing technology stack. The first head of marketing took notes, and when he got back to the office, he handed the list to his marketing manager with instructions to purchase and implement all of it. (laughs) The marketing manager brought us in to implement the new tech. One of our first question was, can you tell us why you purchased this particular technology? What goals drove the business decision to switch to this platform? And what outcome do you expect to accomplish? (laughs) I'm laughing to keep from crying. Their answer was simply 
uh, the CMO went to a conference and found out this is what all the best-in-class teams are using. He said, we have to use it too, but we don't know what we're supposed to accomplish with it. One technology of the stack alone cost $60,000. No one knew what they were supposed to do with it or how they were supposed to get a return on their investment with it. And in that same chapter, you mentioned uh, Scott Brinker, past guest on the show, founder of Chief Martech. He said the average enterprise has a marketing technology stack of like 91 tools. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this uh, movement to CRO and all the things that you uh, talk about improving the customer experience have to do with technology. But first, we have to get past the problem here. And I've touched on some of them, but can you say more about why marketers buy into this or businesses? Why do they buy into this mentality? Outside of the revenue folks, so outside of CMO, CRO, head of sales, um, it happens because they don't understand what's going on. Um, they like just they're don't not familiar with the technology. It. Yeah, they just don't quite get. Um, they just need. I just you know, if you're the CEO, you're like, I just need deals. <laughs> so okay. if you need to get in your car and drive over there, do it. So oh, best in class, do that. Buy it. Um, we'll budget for it within the group. This the revenue group. It's just so uh, fragmented. This would be the right right word. So you're if you're running marketing and you know and and what I'm about to say is so common, and yet it's going to sound like I'm exaggerating. The the head of marketing's like I can't even talk to the head of sales. Like <laughs> they they don't even show up to my meetings mm-hmm. that I have with them, or when they do, they're just a big jerk. And therefore, I'm going to buy a bunch of stuff so that I'm sort of like have an arsenal, you know, and can kind of defend myself. Like, well, no, I've got this going on. I've got this going on. I'm you know, doing something. It, you, yeah. yeah, use it if you want, but um, you can't say I'm not doing my part. So when, you know, if things are going wrong and you try to blame marketing, I can say, hey, I got best in class tech stack. So mm-hmm. go ahead and try to fight that. Right, right. And actually... That chapter wasn't enough. You then had to drag me through chapter four, which was called <laughs> Not My Monkeys, Not My Circus. And it was like, I thought I was, you know, I was starting to get a little depressed. And then chapter four just wore me out. <laughs> I started reading this. <laughs> well, I think that may have been what you were trying to show, the depths of the problem with a lot of this. And right, right. so I, I looked it up. I, I believe Not My Monkeys, Not My Circus is a Polish expression. Shout out to our <laughs> listeners in Poland. But talk a bit more about it. There's a whole chapter on how this all this silo action going on where a lot of people are, well, they're kind of exhausted. And they're saying, like you just said, I, I can't, I, I, I've got to do something and I can't seem to get cooperation from these other, uh, these other folks. But there's this, um, a real lack of holistic vision. Yeah. And um I know you said I had to make it worse by dragging you through that chapter, but it's even worse than that. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, now you got your second book. <laughs> the, and what I mean is it's so bad that it's become a part of part of a marketer's career oh. is being really good at throwing up the block and saying, I'm such a good marketer, watch me deal with heads of sales. Watch how I do my own thing. Watch how I, you know, I'm not bothered by how they're not working with me. 
watch this. And so it's become a bit of a professional skill. Mm. Um, heads of marketers going, uh, I, I met with uh, the head of marketing at one of the biggest companies in the world. And we had an issue. I brought an issue forward that certainly was in revenues purview. Certainly in his world of revenue, but definitely something that sales had to had to be a part of and and it he he wasn't like don't want to deal with that don't like that guy not happening his was what i'm saying that the problem's worse of him going oh my god like i've gotten past that in my career like i don't even bother like you can go talk to him about that mm -hmm. like i am very successful as head of marketing and will continue to be because i know where to draw my line and say, yeah, that's hurting revenue to, in this case, to the effect of $1 billion a year on the low side. Yet, like, so what? Like, I'm just not going to worry about that. Yeah, I got my job. And at the end of the, that chapter four, it's like you were kind of, again, reading my mind. And you say, at this point, you may be thinking, you know, because we're talking about circuses and monkeys and all that. You say at this point, you may be thinking, "Why do I have to be a ringmaster? <laughs> why? Mm -hmm. Why should you bother in the first place? Why does it even matter at all?" And there was one line on page ninety-three that really summed it up for me. In the next chapter, you write, "As long as you see your departments separately, your business growth will be limited. As long as you see your departments separately, your business growth will be limited." So. Okay, I think a lot of folks are saying, well, but that's just kind of the hand I'm dealt or whatever. Mm -hmm. But address that. But also, what happens if you are getting a lot of pushback on on growth or you feel like your leader is you know, working against you and, and you don't know why? It's like you're, you're hitting some sort of a brick wall as it applies to growing the business, which the leadership should theoretically be quite interested in. Mm -hmm. So a couple of answers. My first one will be more fun. Thank you. The, my first fun answer is, well, maybe it's enough. Maybe I think it's fun. <laughs> um, the first answer is, yeah, this, this sort of plan is for the courageous. Yes. And it, there's not, if you think of it in a numbers way, percentage wise, not everyone is up for this task. And in fact, most people are not. Mm. They like landing in their job. They like the lifestyle that they have based on the progression they've made in their career in marketing or sales. And it's just, yeah, you know, I'm not built for this. So why I'm not, why bother? Uh -huh. I don't want to be a ringmaster. Just give me my stuff. And if we miss our goals or don't grow that much, like not my problem. Mm-hmm. Then the sort of less fun way to say it is, well, you know, the, we break this up into four stages. So even if you feel like, well, I don't think I'm that courageous, you know, our first step is around getting the technology aligned mm -hmm. and make sure that at least that, which is the core of everyone's interaction with a brand, is getting getting set up right and not completely dysfunctional because you can't build anything on top of, you know, this fragmented, you know, bunch of different technologies, some of which duplicate the other technologies capabilities, but nobody knows because nobody talks. 
you know, so even if you're not, or at least think you're not super courageous, we're trying to give you a chance to ease your way forward so that you don't have to be the best influencer. Once you start taking steps, you'll start to bring other people along uh, around you, the CEO, the head of sales, head of support, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And it brought to mind for me, the expression of the secret of getting ahead is just getting started. So mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. break this down into steps that could be done over a, a year or, or longer. I mean, depending mm-hmm. upon how long your how big your organization is, but it gives you some, some mileposts, uh, which we're mm-hmm. going to talk about. So, Okay, now I think we've pretty much uh, depressed and bummed out all the listeners, uh, just as I <laughs> was. You, we just went through the first. You just you just covered the first uh, part of the book of you know the problem, right? right? Like, right, exactly. Okay. Yeah, and so what's wrong with you? <laughs> right. Well, but I think Raleigh Keenan. I think a lot of marketers and listeners to this show uh, will read that first part and feel like they're in a support group. Because mm-hmm. a lot of them mm-hmm. were probably thinking they'd been taking taking crazy pills, and I'm sure they're going to yep. read this and say, "Wow, Mike Raleigh and Brandy, they they get me. They really mm-hmm. <laughs> understand me. Mm-hmm. I love these guys. They'll probably start stalking you, and they just want to be friends <laughs> with you." So well, let's look to the future, though. Okay, and okay. when I say the future, I don't mean like you know Austin Powers' prediction of the future, which is that everyone will have their own flying car, entire meals come in pill form, and the Earth is run by damn dirty apes. No, we're not going to mm-hmm. talk about that. <laughs> But the chapter six, I thought was worth carving in stone, and I could just imagine at some point in the future, I might have this on an enormous slide, because it ties together so many concepts that have been on this, this show. And the title of that chapter is, If It Isn't Working for the Customer, It Isn't Working. There's, there's, <laughs> I, I loved it. I loved it. I, I, and, and the reason I say that is, it forces a company to say, well, is it in fact working for the customer? <laughs> I think that's where most of them don't bother. Right. They don't go, they don't go uh, any further. And, and then just going on, there was another one on page 107 where you write, if you want to know if what you're doing is working, ask yourself if it's working for the customer. Don't look at your success, but at your customer's success. Seriously, Raleigh, the entire book's have uh, been been written about this. But what I wanted to ask you to touch on from that section is, can you uh, explain what you mean when you recommend adopting this outside-in thinking? Mm-hmm. So I think a giant uh, example that everyone's experienced and hasn't been solved yet, uh, and I'm not going to solve it because I hate that industry in terms of like for my own personal talents, like I'm not built for it, but it doesn't, Nothing about my internet provider works mm-hmm. for me. Nothing. And I think if, you know, Xfinity <laughs> were to go outside in and say, what do you need? <laughs> I think their whole business would change. Well, now, are um, they the only ones providing service to where you are? Uh, CenturyLink is another one. Oh, okay. um, but I just haven't. Uh, it was easier for my switch from where I was, where Xfinity was my only choice. It was easier when I moved to be like, oh, I'll just stick with them for now. Right, right. But if they uh, were to say, what, what what does the customer want? Yeah. Like, what kind of touch points do I really want with them? Um, you know, I run a business out of my house, but I really don't have any kind of options that are clear for me 
that I might have different needs than someone who just uses it for television or whatever. Um, or at least not in anything that seems digestible. Um, and, you know, to call in for some kind of discrepancy or help is impossible. Mm-hmm. So that does not work for me in any way and never has. And so outside in, it seems to be that the larger the business or the more sort of mm, embedded in life your business is, some infrastructure business, which you could claim that certainly is, uh, or transportation that is just necessary, <clears throat> those businesses seem to be the absolute worst at even taking a stab at like, hey, let's back, let's like flip this table over and just start with what do people need? Um, and so be, when you start designing things that way, uh, and we gave an example in the book of, you know, a B2B situation of, I just got something that's fairly expensive that doesn't work, but ultimately it's a transactional situation. I just need to get it back to you. Uh, I need to return it. And they had a bot that just understood my request on their website that was like, you got this, what's the problem? And I'm just typing regular conversational, you know, words. And within seconds, I had a return label. I had, I had a place to go drop it and it was over. Like, I mean, less than a minute, probably I was done. And it's like, that's exactly what I need. Cause it, I didn't need to talk to anyone. Mm-hmm. I didn't need anything that was, you know, on someone's CX initiative of how much we need to really engage our customers. So therefore, if they call in, you know, go through this script of questions with them. Look, I just bought something. I know it's wrong because I'm an expert at what I bought. I just need to give it back to you. (laughs) Please don't make me have an interview. So You don't mind this interview, though. This is okay. (laughs) This is good. Okay, thanks. But I know I can lose you at any time. You know, you can just hang up and... (laughs) I'll let let you know. But yeah, working outside in breaks tradition. It often can change budgets because if you were to work outside in, you might have to be thinking, oh my, you know, I can't quite hit the gross margin that I really want to hit if I were to change that. Therefore, let's not do that. Let's just go best practice Let's hire Mary. She's a best call center person on earth because she's worked at all these big companies. Let's just have her put her program in. She'll get bonused if her costs for the call center go down by X percent. We're done. Yeah. Like why, why relook at that? Because it's just going to mess everything up. Well, but change is hard, Raleigh. <laughs> there was a very funny part of the book. I think you all did it in all caps. Uh-huh. <laughs> we were talking about people's uh, lament about change. But if it totally. isn't working for the customer, it isn't working, love it. And as easy as it is, is for a knuckleheaded podcaster to say that, it's really, really hard for companies Mm -hmm. to figure out if it's not working for the customer. So let's go to the next chapter where I know a lot of listeners were interested who found out that I was going to be interviewing you today. RevOps, Revenue Mm. Operations. I want to quote this because these are uh, a few terms we want to make sure people understand. I want to quote from page 123. 
and then ask you uh, a okay. question after that. Today's businesses have marketing technology, sales technology, and customer service technology. They purchase and manage the tech on a piecemeal basis with teams like marketing ops and sales ops operating from within their individual departments. Managing these technologies individually creates a disjointed customer experience. Moving away from department-owned technology to a model where any technology that supports customer interaction is centralized is what we call revenue technology or rev tech. Imagine bringing the right people together as a team whose primary goal is to utilize revenue technology to enhance the experience for everyone, from a prospect in the pre-sale stage to a loyal customer. Revenue operations, or RevOps, is that team. The RevOps team sees RevTech holistically and from end to end to deliver a consistent, optimized customer experience and drive revenue. Now, what I want to ask is, you say that, to be clear, the RevOps you may be familiar with, almost like back to our earlier question, the RevOps you may be familiar with is not likely what we are talking about here. So please Mm -hmm. clarify that. I I think, and you know, there's a little bit of uh, unknowing for me because I, um, good or bad, have less experience with how people are currently talking about RevOps because I spent the last two years doing our own version of it mm-hmm. and it's evolved a lot. But based on the people that you have spoken with. Yeah. But but based on what I see and people that talk about it to me now, um, they're still isolating and they're still saying this is RevOps and it's kind of like sales ops uh, with a few extra things in it. Um, you know, it's the sales force admins and like you know, adjacent a of, to sales ops. Yeah. Right. And, uh, we're making a, we're making, uh, we're pulling the Salesforce admin out of it and now he's in, now he's rev ops and they're, we're going to consult with them on some things we're doing in marketing, but a lot of times it's not a cohesive group. Uh, and it's, uh, has no clear strategy to work with it Mm-hmm. Uh, and in some cases, it's still IT, and it's this dotted line relationship. And so they're still, you know, trying to get alignment and trying to influence RevOps to really help them. And so it's like by name, we're on the same team, um, but actually, we never really changed much. Uh, we're just trying to call it something something else. Yeah, more like a window dressing. And Mm -hmm. throughout the book, you I'm afraid you make it very clear that (laughs) there are certain fundamental things that have to change. I mean, certain load bearing walls have to be moved, uh, ultimately. Well, think about think about RevOps, like the way I'm talking about it in the book, the way that we're describing it. And uh, there's some dynamic there of me and Mike and Brandy, when we wrote this, that that you know you 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 mentioned that the book didn't seem like three different people were writing different parts, and it's because we have super complementary experiences and and perspectives on how this how this comes together. And picture that RevOps team being this very new group of technologists that you know, maybe some of them came from RevOps, maybe some of them came from marketing because a lot of marketing teams right now are stacked with technology capable people 
mm-hmm. because that's the way they run marketing, which is a whole other book. Um, but you know, there's this group that is now the guiding force of, you know, you go to them and say, I need X to happen strategically because the business planning we did in August that we have to execute in 2022, I don't see how I can do this. And then they are kind of the consultant to say, well, actually we have a couple of technologies deployed where we don't use those features yet, but we probably could versus you going out and saying, what do I need to buy and trying to talk to vendors and, you know, Mm -hmm. figure that out. Um, And the rev, the uh, revenue ops team knows when contracts expire and they're looking ahead. And so it's a, it's a whole different ball game versus let's just call these people that do this stuff rev ops. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, that'll help, help us in one way or another, get a budget for them or something. It's, you know, much more narrow purview from what I've seen that people, when they talk about RevOps, that's what they mean. I would think anyone that reads the book would then be able to see through the window dressing that you're describing at some companies Mm -hmm. where they think they're making change, but it's really not the kind of fundamental change that that makes a difference. Maybe. (laughs) So let's go to chapter eight. And I don't mean to sound like an English teacher assigning an essay question to you, Raleigh. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's talk about a couple of definitions here that are in chapter eight that I think were that are really uh, very important, uh, which kind of brought to mind the the digital versus analog world. Mm-hmm. And so let's talk about if you could compare and contrast <laughs> what you mean by the old front office versus the new front office. This seems to be one of the fundamental uh, things to help people understand how to make this transformation. Sure. And we, and we do our best uh, visually to um, present it as, you know, a physical space of current front office is still very fragmented, operating separately. Almost like uh, four different, like a floor plan you've got here on -hmm. page 131, a floor plan of like four different departments. Yeah, and and I remember back in uh, late '90s, early 2000s, where it started to happen, where the head of marketing or the head of sales or whatever started to take on technology without consulting IT. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a and that has persisted even today in different ways. Of even if now I've got RevOps. It's still, I'm still doing this kind of dance, which is, you know, difficult and full of, you know, how influential am I as a leader of trying to work with IT because I need them (laughs) because ultimately this technology and if I'm in marketing or sales and support, you know, I'm handling customer data. So now I've got security and privacy issues. So I've got to be nice to and and work with IT. So it still becomes this, you know, current front office for most people is still segmented and honestly depend in its effectiveness depends on the kind of leaders that you have. Are they 
very collaborative? Are they an amazing influencer? Those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to do this for folks uh, at your episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. I'm, I'm going to take a picture of 131 that shows this front office, which basically all of these four different departments, which may or may not be working together, they're theoretically supposed to be feeding into the customer experience. And that's where you can see the the disconnect. And then yes. uh, the one on page 133, I'll include a picture of that too, which shows how it's different. And I think that what's what's the straw that stirs the drink here, as I like to say, is it is it better for the customer or not? Mm-hmm. Yes, and the the my answer to that would be it it is by definition because now there is only one entrance. There's only one room. So with one table. Yeah, so could it be could it be also not good for the customer? Yeah, I guess if they come in that room and no one's listening. Well, but it couldn't be any worse than the uh, the segmented section of all the different departments working independently. Right. So in the others in the old scenario, it's like you could listen really well, but it may not matter because no one else in the other rooms heard you. Yes. And you may not tell them because you don't like that guy, or they're just going to make your life hell, or you know whatever. However, you picture it as the you know this seasoned leader of marketing. You know better than to talk to sales about this. So it, it, the dysfunction is is at least given a chance to be eliminated when you're doing a modern front office. And the the real the key that I haven't even brought up, which you know I think like Mike's the technologist and author here. He's probably, if he was hearing me and he'll (laughs) hear this podcast, obviously, it's like waiting on me to say it. Like the technology part of this is, is really the foundation because in the modern front office, there, there essentially is a second IT department. Yes. And and I'm shortcutting that, and there's a lot of things but, wrong with me but using that's those where you words. Ta- but. No, but that's where you talk about the modern front office and the back office. Mm-hmm. There you go. Yep. And that relationship. And I, I guess the modern front office is, has to do with uh, more with customer experience. Mm-hmm. And the back office, which still can be the central nervous system, that's not necessarily customer-facing, and that's much of what IT still needs to manage. Yeah. And you know they're doing the things that are long – like if we're going to change our security security policy, or we need to change something infrastructure wise, well, let's make sure we do that in the next three years. Um, I need to change how we're doing this for our new strategy in our products. That needs to be done in two months, and IT is going to look at you and say, "Look, we've got our resources planned out <laughs> for the next three years." So. Maybe I could slip you in a, a few, you know, developers to help you. But don't be surprised if 30 days in, I tell you, I, I can't give them, I need them back. Right, right. Um, story everyone tells uh, on projects that we work on uh, all the time. Right. So let's move on to another concept that I, I it just really worked for me. I, under, I understood it. I mean, it this book is so well written. Even a knuckleheaded podcaster was able to understand this concept. It was new to me. And explain what you mean when you write that in this modern front office model of a revenue takeover, a business mm-hmm. operates like a set of dominoes being set up to fall on each other. So again, let's think about the picture of everyone at the table, support, 
sales, customer success, marketing. Now, the difference of having a modern front office is uh, the difference between a salesperson who is hating the leads that are coming through. And maybe they are calling them when they're supposed to. The you know, I get the lead. I need to call them within this many hours or days. Um, maybe they aren't, <clears throat> but they're looking at those leads going, <laughs> I have to have, I have an average deal size expected of me of, of, you know, $150,000 per, you know, new, new deal. And the leads that are coming to me are expecting me to do something for them for, for $25,000 in the old front office, just like, <sighs> I mean, I'll call the leads, but I've got to drum up my own. Right, they would say uh, they would pull a Glenn Gary and say the leads are weak. <laughs> right. Marketing doesn't know what they're doing. That's right. There's a connection. There's a communication that would happen in the modern front office where <laughs> this they the people leading up to those leads, all the activity leading up to that, would understand. Oh, wait a minute, we need to readjust. Yeah, they the domino of when you do that in marketing. Before I get my lead in sales, the last you know four weeks of leads are completely off base. Marketing is not like, hey, that's just our plan, and and gosh, that's a good concern. We'll get back to you. Never. It, now it's your your success is mine. Like I completely lose. I don't I don't win in marketing just because I I hit my goal of this many leads. I win in marketing when your deals are the right size. Mm -hmm. And so now there's this open lane of, you know, maybe head of RevOps because it's technology related. You know, the manager for that sales team comes to the table and then a particular person in digital marketing and they all sit down and say, look at what's happening. Like, how do we change that domino that's earlier in the line so that, so that it actually hits the next one? for sales because right now it's just falling it's not even falling it's falling flat and there's uh, the, the the line of succession stops <laughs> likewise if they're too close you have to set these dominoes up in a certain way so that they fall one after the other uh and that's it's it's coordinated so i thought it was a great it was a great and, it, uh, and it's velocity like if you can change it quickly you know within a quarter <laughs> you can change the direction of what's happening mm-hmm. and in a in a old school front office, it's like, well, let's see how this year goes. <laughs> and we may not fix anything through the year. <laughs> uh, we'll just, you know, hey, that's not my fault. Like sales, your deal. If marketing sucks, you just got to do your own thing. Yep. Uh, yep. And marketing, as long as they hit what I told them to, which is this many leads, then, you know, everybody gets their bonus and they're happy. So, um, you know, the the velocity you could gain from that, mind shift, you know, which is, you know, probably a good, uh, you know, s- sort of stake in the ground to say, am I really changing the paradigm of the front office and rev ops or am I not is, can you change things quickly? Mm-hmm. You know, can you adjust or are you like everyone else? You've got cool names for your departments, but really people are still operating on their own. Right. The, the business is digital, but the the business uh, is, is operating in an analog way. So before we wrap up, I wanted to jump to all the way back to chapter 11, or excuse me, all the way back to page 11 
And you write, uh, I mean, because you've got very, uh, you know, pretty granular instructions on these are like the four things you really have to do. And it's going to be different for every company and it's going to be a different timeline for everybody. But these are the, the must haves. And you write, we believe the key to effective, sustainable customer experience relies on four actions. One, get the right technology. Two, create a revolutionary revenue operations team. Three, align leadership, compensation, and goals. And four, introduce a new kind of CRO. Let me ask you just a couple quick questions about that, that touches on some of those. And you write on page 181 about having the right tech. And of course, we've already established that a lot of companies, their marketing technology stack is sort of a ramshackle thing put together with bailing wire and, and gum. Uh, but so, so you show in there, you know, how to go about determining, are there certain things you can get rid of? Uh, you know, all that sort of thing. And you write on the chapter on having the right tech, you write, uh, phase one of a revenue takeover is having the right tech. That starts with your technology purchases. Typically, technology purchases are based on business needs, right? You would think that's how it happens, but more often they're not. Familiarity, adverse selection, minimum requirement RFPs, fear of missing out on the latest gadget, and compromise are the overriding decision makers when it comes to buying new tech. So could you touch a little bit more on the perils of how people or companies are currently buying tech and what they should be doing in, instead? And, and if you could, touch on the concept on uh, what, what's a use case. That seemed to be a linchpin for a lot of this. Sure. So it's a lot to answer there. And I'll come back in way. about 30 minutes to see how you're doing. <laughs> Let me just give a example that almost everyone would be familiar with for familiarity and compromise as the as what I mean when I say that right. and that's and that's the behemoth of salesforce uh-huh. and that you know even companies that should not have salesforce as a CRM all have salesforce and salesforce has done what all these companies do which is by hey wouldn't it be great if we had marketing automation built into our CRM in the same ecosystem? Uh, go buy that company, um, and you know then and, and the Salesforce will take care of the rest. They'll sell it. Yes, yeah. and so Salesforce is uh, so familiarity and compromise. <laughs> Let's see if Salesforce calls me on the phone after this <laughs> podcast. Is their strategy? Um, so dysfunction is their strategy for sales growth. And that is, look, the IT guy has a relationship with Salesforce, uh, sorry, the CIO, maybe the CTO in some organizations. Right. And maybe a bunch of the sales team used it at their last jobs. So there's some familiarity Yeah, I've got a bunch of developers. They're really familiar with Mm -hmm. how to work this. So let's just go with that. Now, it doesn't doesn't work for any of our use cases, really, but they'll make it work um, because I can get a good deal on that. Or at least it looks like a good deal. Um, they're actually going to charge me a zillion dollars for storage, but I'm not going to really, I'm not going to make that the highlight of my sales pitch. I'm just going to say, hey, we're pretty much giving it to you for free. You already use Salesforce, and then they'll get a bill for usage and storage later, and you know that will hit a different part of the budget, so the CIO still, you know, wins. So there, that's an example of of that. And, it's, it's, you know, it impressed me as not being terribly logical, a lot of that uh, purchase yeah. of marketing technology. 
Yeah, I would say, you know, just to give you an example of how like common it is, I would say just in November, I heard that from five or six clients. So it's happening. It's a great sales strategy from Salesforce. And they have good salespeople. Yeah, they know. And they and those salespeople, like any good software company, can mm-hmm. really zero in on your fear of missing out. And mm-hmm. they'll talk about things that you didn't think were important, but they're telling you, oh, no, this is important. <laughs> <laughs> because we have it. Right. Yeah. So, and, and use case is very difficult to zero in on. And so when we say use case, uh, we worked with a, a gun manufacturer who um, had, had their business is just not like any B2B, B2C. It's just different. Um, and their use case had this whole scenario, this whole scenario sequence of interactions of, you know, being a gun owner and being licensed and being in a club where you get discounts and being recognized because you're a veteran. And it was just unique. And that use case just would never work in the way that the marketing automation platform that Salesforce, you know, has in their cloud could really handle very well. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were definitely leaning that way. They didn't go that way and they ended up doing the right thing, but they didn't want to, they just wanted to go with familiarity and the sort of unpacking of that whole, you know, don't even think about marketing automation, but just think about business automation and how do you make things happen without, you know, that are unique and valuable and a differentiator to your competitors how can you do those things without hiring a whole new team of people? You know, how can you leverage and some technologies, you know, uh, you combine a stack of five technologies to do that. Um, you need really specific things, not best in class, but things that are best for your sequence of events that are just unique and a way for you to differentiate and therefore grow and make a larger profit because people see you as different. Right. Another thing that you talked about in the book was how little time people spend evaluating technology and the the importance of hiring somebody. I mean, your firm or somebody out there who does mm-hmm. this all day. It's like hiring mm-hmm. an accountant or an attorney or somebody who solves these kind of problems and can be much more uh, objective and has a lot more experience. It seems like there's a this isn't an ad for Tegra, but it seems like there's a great, a great value in if you're going to be investing hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars in marketing technology to hire maybe a couple of consultants to come in and and tell you where you mm-hmm. might be hemorrhaging money mm-hmm. uh, and 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 how you might be about to make a big mistake that they've seen a hundred times. So, mm-hmm. well, let's go one last question uh, before we wrap up. And mm-hmm. again, it's this is one that I'm stealing, and I I mean it. Of course, I'll. Give you guys full attribution. <laughs> okay, but this is ha- the section on um, aligning uh, goals, and this is probably one of my favorite parts of the book. It talks about the goals and mm-hmm. how few companies are able to get their arms around it. But explain what a wig is, and I'm not talking about something I may or may not have worn to a Halloween party years ago. This is something else. It's on page 222. Talk to us about wigs, because I thought it was great 
at uh, almost forcing the organization to say, okay, here's what we've got to do in terms of goals. <laughs> well, and it's it's the hard part and the new <laughs> part of this whole thing, which is wild, wildly important goals. Mm-hmm. And in my past, I think we had uh, it's a slightly different version of that acronym of kind of like, let's get a goal that's like so hard to reach that it's going to be awesome if we hit, you know, so oh, we're not saying that. Like a big, hairy, audacious goal or something. There you go. Yeah. yeah. BHAG, yeah. And so what we're saying here is that you've got to do the hardest thing in your, of your life, which is pick three things. Uh, you could pick up to five maybe, but three things that cross all parts of that front office, support, success, marketing, sales. What are three things that the executives can all get paid on and focus on so that ultimately their success is completely aligned? Like just because I, you know, one guy is all about sales, but he has, doesn't care about the brand or whatever, because it's just not part of his wig list, that's not going to play out very well. It's just going to ruin the whole idea of alignment. Well, but Raleigh, the thing that I found appealing is that these were goals that if they failed to achieve them, it would not be good. I, my takeaway was they might lose their mm-hmm. jobs. In other words, <laughs> these, yeah. are not, yeah. these are not uh, solve world hunger goals. These are save my job or I will get axed by the board of directors. That helps them focus, uh, sort of like the fear of death. Yeah, let me zoom out of it and say that the way that people hire, and I'm talking mostly about bigger companies, but they're even for smaller ones, where they go and I'm going to go get a chief revenue officer, or I'm going to go get a head of sales or support. Um, They're giving them a goal in their contract. That is nothing so much related or aligned to the other people in the front office. <laughs> right. That's so, right. Yeah, it's explained. So very this nicely. changes so this changes everything in terms of, you know, and why it doesn't why this is not an overnight thing, right? You can't just cancel the head of sales contract because you read the book. But you've got to start to say, hey, these are we all we pay on these three things for the front office roles. It doesn't matter for the COO or the CFO. But for these people who who are in our customer facing execs, you know, and this is before you have a CRO in place, what do these people need to be aligned on here? Like, what are the three things? And mm-hmm. you know, it, uh, you, we can say, oh, well, that's easy. It's you know, sales and growth, and, but it may not be. And that's what's unique and why there's not a magic pill here. It's like, what is it for your business that you need these people being aligned on because it because of the, your your particular industry or the time right now in your industry that you need to be very different so here's that you know wig or because my business is so you know in this regulatory area for the government I've got to focus on this thing which is not so obvious but I can have everybody focused on it and have some influence on it and some way to act on it. So it's a hard, it's hard. Um, yeah. Probably the hardest thing. And that's why no one does it because it's easier to say, well, support. I mean, how about let's limit call times? You know, if you can handle customers in less than 30 seconds, this is a bonus. 
you know. So yeah, but somebody's going to say, well, let's limit call times. Great. Fire half the call center. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, but so that was sort of what you talked about, as I recall yeah. now, in another part of the book where you're saying, you know, they, they bring in some CEO, let's say, mm-hmm. maybe back to your private equity pals, mm-hmm. and they'll say, we want you to do this one thing. We want you to um, boost whatever the number, a denominator somewhere, whatever. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. They do that, and they end up slashing and burning the rest of the of the, the the business, you know, that, yeah. that that helps them achieve that. So, yeah, yeah and I mean, we've all maybe watched that in real time. I mean, maybe a, my experiences are unique, but I mean, I can think of one in particular where the CEO's whole job was to kill the union. That was it, and I just watched him just destroy the business, mm. and they have not recovered. Still, that was eight years ago. But that's what they told him to do. But he do. got bonus like crazy. I mean, I think he right. made over a hundred million dollars on that because he did it. <laughs> but <laughs> and then not <laughs> not aligned, not aligned. Yeah, interesting. Well, Raleigh, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I would hope, and I and actually, you know, the the uh, benefit of having three authors is I think we'd all have a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Mine is from the personal management career perspective to say, I hope that someone can see from this book that, you know, one of the biggest successes I could have is to truly transform revenue. And that is not a tweak or a new technology or a, you know, clever strategy. Like it's a big thing. That That's what I hope someone gets out of it. Like I can do a big thing if I want, I can do something really good. This would be a great book for a marketer to read early in their career, or, or you know, mm-hmm. certainly, certainly later, or right now. But you can, you understand where you want the organization to be, and this shows you how to start in that direction. Also, I think it shows people what what is possible. And there have been a number of books on the show that I like to talk about, where they say, you know, if, if marketers that are associated with revenue stay. Those that are not connected with revenue get asked to leave. I mean, there's any number of books, The Rise of mm-hmm. the Revenue Marketer or The 12 Powers of a Marketing Leader or Sway, which I mentioned earlier, or uh, The Whole Marketer by uh, Abigail Dixon or Standout Marketing. And I, I think that that would be uh, – it, it would be an eye-opener. And, and I say that because you know there's been several hundred books on the show. This is the first one like this that I've read. So um, I, I think it would be help to rewire uh, a lot of people's marketing brain and show them what's possible. I think that a lot of CEOs or <laughs> private equity guys would probably do well to read this. Um, but hey, we can dream, can't we? <laughs> so, uh, well, and also I should say, if I were a better interviewer, I'd be, I would have invited uh, Mike and Brandy on the show, but I'm not that good at interviewing three people. <laughs> in fact, in 300 and over 50 uh, interviews. I think I've only done one where it was two people. Now, mm-hmm. if I were Ethan Butte, my friend who listens to the Marketing Book Podcast, author <laughs> from Bomb Bomb, uh, his latest oh, book, yeah. uh, Human Centered uh, Communication, he interviewed all three of you, and he sent me a, a, a link to it. And uh, <laughs> I just thought, well played, Mister Butte. Well played. <laughs> Look what I did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there you go. But. Um, well, what's one thing a listener could do today, if anything, to put in action one of the ideas from your book that might get them just a few inches closer to heading in the right direction? I think either I think the technology stuff is a good 
thing you could just do. And that would either be, you know, going as far as hiring someone, if you had the budget to take a look at the technology involved in the whole front office, Mm -hmm. or even just on your own, like, what do I have? Um, Yeah, there was a part in the book where you guys talk about a matrix, putting a matrix together. That could be what they do. I would think that just from our experience, like we, I just looked at, we do this all the time. I just looked at one yesterday. We drew the, basically the flow, data flow for a client. And it happened with them. It happens a hundred percent of the time, not most of the time, but a hundred percent that the client's like, oh, I didn't know that was there. <laughs> like all the time. So it, if nothing else, you could do that just to say, oh man, uh, yeah. Yikes. Don't, and, and I remember we did one for, you know, not a small company, not a immature company, where I think I'm just picturing it in my in my mind. I think there was a whole page, so probably six or seven technologies that they paid for every month and hadn't been used in a year. They didn't know because who owns it? I'm not sure, but IT kind of has it in their hands. And I think maybe the guy in support was using it, but he left and there's a new support guy (laughs) and he doesn't know it's there. Yeah. You know, so it's on a different credit card. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. So that's, that's something everybody could take action on. Oh my goodness. Be careful (laughs) folks. You might be frightened by what you see, but it's, that's, that sounds like a great first step. Well, uh, looking back on your career, what books have most uh, inspired you? Oddly, my first one's odd. The second one's maybe not as surprising, but the first one is The Goal, which was just a great book about operations and, you know, the whole idea that, you know, I reference every time I'm at Chipotle of like, don't they know if they just had three registers, this would go faster? You know, like just the whole idea of flow of process, just a great book. For anyone in business. Yeah, I'm holding a copy of it right now. The goal. Are you? <laughs> a process of ongoing improvement. Uh, Eliyahu mm-hmm. Goldrot and Jeff Cox. This is the 30th anniversary edition. Um, but I've heard a lot about that. It's in some category, book category on Amazon that uh, we beat in our first month. And I was just like, oh my God, we beat one of my favorite books. Oh, wow. Yeah, it says the best-selling business novel that introduced the theory of constraints and changed how Mm -hmm. America does business. Over 6 million copies sold. Just a great book. And then one that I hope uh, is a new one for people to look at is called The Undoing Project. And without going into a ton of detail, uh, it's based on how I learned years ago how to hire. It's a book about someone I worked with that I didn't know other people knew about, and it goes into detail about how uh, everyone hires wrong and how we hire in terms of innate talent versus like what skills and experience do you have? And that's my first litmus test. And it's just great history if you like psychology and the whole idea of like, how do I hire better? It's just a great, great book. This is by Michael Lewis, the guy that wrote Liar's Poker. And um yes. Uh, Money, Moneyball, The Undoing Project, A yes. Friendship That Changed Our Minds. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I didn't know about that. So much of what happens to us right now in business has a lot to do with the two guys in that book. Uh, and we just didn't know it. Um, so it's a great, great read. 
Interesting, interesting. And of course, he's a great author, so it's also easy to read. Yes, yes, he's terrific. Well, are there any recent or upcoming books that you have heard about or that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? I'm looking forward to reading The Value of Everything, Mariana Mazzucato. Oh, uh, just it's kind of an economics book, but it's a you know we have a lot of a lot of us you know I'm I'm uh, how old am I forty eight something like that uh, and you know we've gone through our classes in school and in college and all this stuff um, around like how do you determine the value of something and how do you decide how to price things and. And this kind of flips a bunch of that on its head. And so I've, I've heard and listened to the author talk about it. And so I'm looking forward to reading all of, her, all of her work. Oh, interesting. The Value of Everything, Making and Taking in the Global Economy, Mariana Mazzucato. Interesting. I didn't know about those last two. Wow, thanks for mentioning those. Well, mm-hmm. at this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, your <laughs> company website, your uh, LinkedIn profile, uh, revenuetakeover.com, which is just for the book, you know, Twitter account, and, and all the books that uh, we've mentioned. And for the listener, if you would, please reach out to Raleigh. Uh, or Mike, or uh, Brandy, but since Raleigh was good enough to come on to the podcast, he spent a lot of time with us, and Marketing Book Podcast guests love hearing from folks that listen to the interview and uh, mm-hmm. and have questions. So I think uh, Raleigh would really appreciate hearing from you, and please thank him, and I, I hope this isn't his last book, so when he comes out with another book, he's going to have to reevaluate which podcast he was on, and I hope he'll come back to this one. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, to the listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on the show notes link. The book is CMO to CRO, The Revenue Takeover by the Next Generation Executive. The authors are Mike Geller, Raleigh Cannon, and Brandy Starr. Raleigh, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you so much for having me on, and uh, my thanks for uh, Brandy and Mike, who are not here, who I'm sure are also super grateful for this. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world, and I'll drop it in the mail. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. And remember the words of the entrepreneur and author Jim Rohn, who said, formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.